Captain Greer, thanks again for doing this. Oh, my pleasure. I've enjoyed it. Well, tell me first uh, about Rackacy Cutoff. Okay. Rackacy Cutoff is uh, uh, close to uh, Old River, where uh, it's across the river, actually, I think, from Angola. Okay. Prison, you know, and it's close to Old River, where the uh, Chafalaya River was at one time, still is, a, distrib a distributary of the Mississippi. This is a rich, complex, the hydraulics of it, you know, are, are, are complex because you've got one, uh, get one watershed kind of nesting into another. You know, you've got the you've got the Red River, the Washita, the uh, uh, Black River, and then the Atchafalaya River, all kind of meeting in the Mississippi and the Atchafalaya, and it's uh, it's it's parallel. It's a drainage system that's kind of parallel to the Mississippi. Uh, Rakasi was an old bend. It's a cutoff now, a cutoff, a, a lake, you know, an oxbow lake. But back in the 1820s, 1830s, when steamboating was getting started on the Mississippi, it was becoming a big business. Uh, it was a lot, there were two bends or three right there in that area, long oxbow bends that cost, you know, if you're piloting a steamboat, that's a long distance between around all of those bends in that complex there. And this was about the time that uh, 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 Captain Shreve, you heard of him? Captain Shreve was a, I think he was, had been a keel boatman. Shreve poured his name for Captain Shreve. And he's one of the, he, the first steamboat down the river was, 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 was built by Nicholas Roosevelt. And it was a boat. It had a keel, you know. And uh, of course, Shreve was a flat boatman, and he understood that the most efficient way to move a cargo, you know, if you wanted a, a, a on a, a seasonal shallow river, was a raft. You know, a raft is rectangular in shape, flat bottom has no hydrodynamics to speak of at all. And if you navigate it at all, you know, you have to do it by positioning it in the current to let the current do most of the work. And Shreve had experience with that. Uh, it, he also, but that's, but that's what you, you were able to get to achieve a minimum draft with a maximum cargo in that way. So Steve started, Shreve started building steamboats like that. Basically a raft with a superstructure of gingerbread on top of it. And it would have some lines, you know, they'd put a, a, a bow of sorts, but no keel, no central member keels. Uh, you know, and these were much more efficient on the Mississippi, which was, it is, a seasonal shallow river and so Sri was a, he was a great inventor he was really kind of the father of steamboating 
much more so than Nicholas Roosevelt or Robert Fulton or any of those people. And one of the things he did was he built a snag boat, which was put to good use, removing snags in the Mississippi. A lot of steamboats got sunk, you know, by running over a snag or a sawyer or something like that. And, you, and, you know, and, and find the bottom of the river. And it was Shreve that started moving those things. Uh, and he also took up the, this big raft of lumber, of, of timber and, and trees and, and that had, was plugging the Red River, way up the Red River. I don't know whether it was all the way to Shreveport or, or what, but it certainly went down the Chapalaya to it stopped basically drainage there. So he started cleaning that out so steamboats could run up the up the Red River, you know, and down the Atchafalaya. Well, as soon as he did that, nature took over and started creating a, a deeper channel. So that nowadays, the only thing that keeps the uh, Mississippi from changing course and going down the Atchafalaya River is old river control structure. That's, thank you, thank you, Captain Steve. That's it, Shreve. That's 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 his fault. Anyway, Rackasy was one of those bends that he cut off and made an oxbow lake, and to speed up travel travel through there, cut off all sorts of miles. There was two of them that he that he turned on. Nowadays, it's pretty wild country. Uh, there, it's near the town of Letsworth. Letsworth is on the Buddy Guy Highway. If you're a, a, if you if you like blues music, that highway, Buddy Guy was born and raised in Letsworth, Louisiana, and that local highway has was named for him. So that's where it is if you're looking for it on the map. And that's Rackasy Cutoff. Before I start reading, uh, tell me also about Walter and the Green Man. Oh. Uh, Walter's my great-grandson. He's four years old. And, boy, he's a character. Uh, and it was some, I don't know where I got this idea, but I started, we were riding somewhere, and I was telling him about this, about the Green Man. The Green Man is an old myth about various, you know, woodland, and uh, deities, you know, vegetal deities. Back in uh, in the Middle Ages, all of the old churches and cathedrals in England, they would be decorated with faces, you know, peeking out of the ivy. And it's, you know, in the poem that, that, that you're reading, I talk about this, it's something like tan, you know, the, the uh, it's probably old as the species itself, you know, these, these deities. And we started talking about the green man and these faces, you know, that there are faces everywhere, out in the woods, out in the backyard, you know. And we had Walter for a while. He would gather, you know, maybe some flowers and some, some grass and some, some sticks and rocks or whatever and take an old pizza box, you know, and create this face in the pizza box. 
you know, that's appropriating the green man. And basically my idea was, was to uh, give him a sense that, that, you know, nature's kind of looking back here, that, that, that the, uh, 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 a sensitivity in, in you, if you will, towards, you know, towards his surroundings, you know, a sense of, of being able to observe uh, just simply later on in the poem, I talk about this, it's, uh, the, 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 the pure joy of finding things, you know, have you ever looked for an agate or a crystal, you know, or in gravel or an arrowhead or one of the best times I ever had in my life was as a young man, a friend and I uh, used to go uh, to Poverty Point up around Lake Providence, Louisiana. And on the uh, Bayou Mason, Bayou Mason used to be an old, the old, an old bed of the Arkansas River. And 4,000 years ago, there was a civilization of, of, of Native Americans who created uh, a, uh, they had a, an effigy, a bird effigy mound. You know, they had a village site that was kind of these, these round, these concentric, circles that ended on Bayou Mason and it was a they were pretty sophisticated people back in those days of course when nowadays it's a national park and there's a museum there with all the artifacts that have been found but my friend and I when we were young men we wandered around it it was it hiked all over the place it was a cotton field and when you, you you find places like that, you kind of develop an eye, you know, for stuff on the ground, airheads or or pieces of pot, you know, pot shirts and that kind of whatever. It's and it's it, and it's so it's such a delight to do that. And I kind of that's that's what I was trying to do to to get Walter interested in that, just simply to. To, to, to help him become more aware and observant, you know, that's all, that's all that was. Anyway, these poems, I've written them all my life, but uh, no, not, not nearly as much as I have in my retirement, you know, it's, it's kind of what I do in my retirement, you know, I don't know what to do with them. I mean, I, I've not really tried to, to send them to, off. I don't know whether people would be interested, you know, in it. Maybe people who are interested in the river would be interested in it. I don't know. But anyway, that's what that's about. The Green Man at Rakasi Cutoff for Walter. Walter has collected his first green man. That's what we're calling it after the ancient deities of vegetation. It's a paganism as old as the species, most likely proper somehow that Walter learned this from one of the ancients, his great granddaddy, most ancient one around. The faithful might not approve, but the whole place is full of faces. We must account for this, faces everywhere. The backyard gathers a crowd, it may be only Walter and I can see them. The oak tree we lost in the ice storm. It's not just chipmunks nesting there. 
creatures peek from every surface and shadow, hide in the season's last cornflower, wink and glitter in the stones. Mosses beard the shady sides, and the old pond is a mud hole. Nothing could live there. But look at how the winds rush and fold the surfaces. These weathers have moods. They live. Of course, we might be trafficking in demons. Imagine the first hominid out of the tree finding a face in the bush. More likely than not, the face of terror. Talon and beak. Predators gone extinct. The human soul smoldering. Coming awake. Tell me, Cap, where did you first meet Dutch Clark? I, I've never met but D Dutch Clark, but we were talking on the radio. I knew him. I knew his brother. I worked on a boat with his brother. Uh, but I knew all so many of my friends when I was starting out uh, on, the, on the river came from that little community where Dutch was from. Dutch was kind of the, 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 the senior of that group of men. And they were, most of them were, uh, you know, my, uh, from my father's generation. But some of them were just genuinely characters. This was, they all came from around the Washita River from a near Columbus or Columbia, Louisiana, a place called Duty Ferry. And when I, Dutch had been, he had owned uh, a boat and operated it on the Ohio River for years. And when I, when I knew him, talked to him, he uh, had, had, was working for Brent Towing Company. And we would meet. He, he, wasn't, he wouldn't work as captain, and I was pilot. So we'd meet and start talking, and we'd go off on another channel and just talk and talk and talk because he had so many great stories. You know, he would tell me about places that he had known that didn't exist on the river anymore, you know? And that was just fascinating to me. So I loved talking to him, and he was a, a sort of raconteur of sorts. You know, he was a great storyteller and just a wonderful old gentleman. He was a really intelligent man, too. I mean, two of his sons became doctors, I think, in Monroe, Louisiana. So, you know, uh, but he was just a, a, a fascinating character. And it's interesting to me that I learned so much about his career and about the river from him, you know, and I've had now almost 50 years of of working on the river and you put the two of us together and that's a hundred years of river history, you know, that's kind of, to me, that's kind of a big deal. That's, that's, that's a lot of American history, you know, bundled up between the two of us. So it's that I knew a lot of, of the older pilots like that and learned a lot from them, you know, and loved talking to them there. They were just a, and I, you know, they say that, that, that I don't know who says it, but that, that history is a foreign country, you know, and it kind of is. And the people of previous generations are very, are really different than we are. You know, a different set of experiences, different set sensibilities and everything. And uh, 
that particular generation, I miss them a lot because they were interesting people. And Dutch was one of the most interesting. Anyway, that's where that's where I knew, I knew Dutch. And I'm glad you're sharing these stories with us here on the podcast. Uh, this has been a pleasure. But to continue. For me too. Dutch Clark saw that channel at Rakasi and Angola swap sides three times in his 50 years as a river pilot. I've seen it happen at least three times during mine. That's a hundred years of river history in the overlap. But it was always a volatile reach. The last time it got away from them, it shredded old Miles Bar like it meant to just keep right on going out to sea. And it will one day, in spite of clever interventions. We don't really know this geography. Old weathers and mountain ranges sifted down to fine muds and clays. There is nothing uniform in alluvium. Each basketful has a singular past. Deep time hides in the bluff bank. Concept of place literally ingrained. But the planet was never seamless. It wasn't made, it was assembled. It is still gathering and folding into itself. Where one watershed nests into another, there are ancient continental scars, eons and atmospheres, big ideas and shovels, unraveled drift racks and old dead men growing oxbow bends, cut off lakes, their very sweat seeping into the aquifers. Dutch grew up at Duty Ferry on the Wachita River, one room schoolhouse on the riverbank. Dutch, we have you a scholarship to LSU, they told him. He looked down at his overalls, his bare feet, and knew he wasn't going to any university. About that time, Captain Cooley's old packet boat, the Betsy Ann, showed up close enough you could hear the bells. You could watch it blackstack when the pilot backed up. No, ma'am, Dutch told the teacher. There goes my university, right yonder. The green man is only a form of pan. And other lucky nameless visitations, whispers, little noises, presences that wander into light and habitation, exercises in seeing and finding, in the pure joy of seeing and finding, searching out arrowheads and potsherds, agates, gravel, quartz and crystals, fossils, walking sticks, finding exotic forms in driftwood and detritus, insect hieroglyphs, all the evidences of creation. A simple weed, a broom straw, could be wild hair or beard, Stones could be grin or grimace. Flowers, black-eyed Susans, could be the eyes of eternal creatures that will stay a day or two in a pizza box before they fade and wilt and return to hiddenness. I'll tell you a story, Walter. This was 60 years ago. Old Dutch was waiting down below Miles Bar when there was a Miles Bar in the world. The lights of Angola glowed across the river. That's where they kept the bad boys and outlaws. He shoved in just below Hog Point. 
It was a bluff bank and he had an empty grain tow. So the port lead barge was right up over the dirt bank. He was waiting for southbound boats to clear. He might have waited two hours or so. Now, that's wild country at Rackesy. Three rivers come together near there, cotton fields, bean fields, woods and swamps, and oxbow lakes. I saw a black bear once, sitting on the riverbank, cooling his feet in the river and watching boats go by. There are wild hogs, alligators, snakes, and wildcats. A day or so later, about that same time of night, Dutch was 140 miles upriver at King's Point, above the town of Vicksburg, dropping off some barges. The crew was on the tow, and Dutch had his searchlight on to light up the decks where they were working. That's when he saw a set of eyes on the head looking back at him. He couldn't tell with his field glasses exactly what kind of critter it was, but it was pretty good size. It looked like a big cat. The boys had been out on the tow all day, tightening wires, stripping void tanks of water. How they had managed to walk past a wild cat, or where he had found to hide from them, was a mystery. He'd probably jumped aboard at Hog Point. Where else? They strip and clean those barges pretty thoroughly at the dock, but there might have been a little corn left under the gunwales, and a big rat left behind to find it. Rat enough to tempt a lynx into a ride on a riverboat. Dutch called the mate on the loudspeaker, and they made a plan. The cat was cornered, pretty much on the starboard head. They were pushed into the bank at the tail of the willow bar. Nothing on that side of the river but hundreds of acres of floodplain and swamp. Centennial Island, between the Mississippi and the Yazoo Canal, and the Old River. There almost certainly were bobcats in residence already, but there was about to be another. The boys came up three sides of the barge, hitting the steel deck with their cheater pipes. All the old cat had to do was jump to the bank. Most likely, he didn't even get his feet wet. There was a sense of unfolding as you ascend, or descend for that matter, a great river. It changes character, becomes a different river, protean in its phases from one place to another. One mile, one reach, one bend leads to another. It has its own logic, yet each place connects in familial fashion. Each place calls back. You could think of this as reading the river. Old geographies, the old rivers, are deep in the fabric. You could almost taste their paintstone colors. Islands and shores might scour, take shapes and forms and names away with them. But the grain of stays. It recharges. I have been here before, you will begin to think. You might begin to think yourself at home in this land. On Huntington Point a hundred years ago, there was a great persimmon tree. It was a significant landmark in those days. If you were a river pilot or a raccoon or the promontory itself, on a river punctuated by such sentient landforms, if you were the pilot, by the time you were abaft the beam of that tree, you were above the eddy bar, but still in the duck water and just flying up the river. Willow switches gathering on the starboard quarter. Coming out from under the point, a slingshot. 
you would want to leave the tree on your stern as you crossed Yellow Bend to the Arkansas shore. If you were a Mississippi raccoon, it was the season of ripening fruit. You lived for that. Hundreds of them would gather in the moonlight. You could light up their eyes, a tree full of green eyes, with those old carbon arc lamps. Feeding on the fruit, drunk on ferment. Breeding, fighting, a festival of that species. Not even the predators would approach. I have this from Captain William Penn Jackson, who was a steamboat captain 1920 or so, by way of his grandson, who was my friend. Tell me about your friend. Oh, well, Bill Jackson, William Penn Jackson III, <laughs> he's, he's not with us anymore. This is Hart, but uh, we knew each other for a long time. I knew his daddy. His dad was a river pilot. He was a, a worked for, uh, he was, I think, in charge of, um, I don't know what his position was, of a, a Oh, I forget what the oil company was there in Baton Rouge, a dock there. Uh, and then he went to work as a, a, a ship pilot at the superport off the coast. But Bill was his was was his son, and Bill and I were friends for four years, I guess. Worked together in South America. In fact, we lost him a couple of years ago. I'm sorry to hear that, but again, I'm glad you're you're here sharing uh, sharing these stories. Oh yeah, I'm 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 glad to be above ground. I wish old Bill was too. This has been a production of Where You At Studios LLC.